Hello, and welcome to Food Safety for Everyone. I'm Ann Hamilton. And I'm Mary Saucier Choate. We are food safety field specialists at the University of New Hampshire Extension. On our podcast, we hope to make food safety easier and more understandable for small food processors, farmers, food service workers, and consumers. These are the folks we work with every day, and they ask us great questions. So we wanted to spread the food safety info to as wide an audience as possible. And today we're talking about selling homemade food products in New Hampshire, part two, when is a commercial kitchen food license required? Part one was all about the foods you can make in your home kitchen. Now in part two, we'll talk about foods you must make in a licensed commercial kitchen. After we review the kinds of foods that require a commercial kitchen and what the licensing requirements are, we'll answer the question of the day and end up with an important food safety tip. So let's get started. Mary and I support homestead food entrepreneurs and want you to succeed. There are some food safety and legal requirements that will help to create a delicious and safe product. We developed a series of five fact sheets to get you started, and we thought this podcast would be another way to help you be informed about the requirements for certain kinds of homestead foods. We'll post a link to the fact sheets in the show notes. We have found that there is a lot of confusion about what can and cannot be made legally in a home kitchen. Our part one podcast spells out what can be made there, but some foods you may make at home for family and friends, such as pickles or sauerkraut, will need a commercial food processing license and access to a commercial kitchen to make and sell these food products to the public. Foods that must be made in a commercial kitchen include acidified or pickled foods, fermented foods, dehydrated foods, and refrigerated foods. It can be confusing. So Mary is going to describe these foods in a little more detail. And I have to add that um, you can do this. You, there's a lot of information we're about to jump into here, but New Hampshire entrepreneurs do it all the time. There's tons of great products out there. You can do this. But let's get started on what you're going to need to do. So first, let's decide, uh, let's define what an acidified food is. So acidified foods are low acid foods, including most vegetables, uh, to which an acid like vinegar or lemon juice or acid foods are added. So a great example of an acidified food is uh, adding vinegar and spices to cucumbers and garlic to make dilled pickles. Acidified And foods include uh, acidified or pickled green beans, cucumbers, cabbage, artichokes, cauliflower, summer squash, peppers, tropical fruit, fish, salsa, and relish. Fermented foods include things like sauerkraut or kimchi and other fermented vegetables. So you can't make and sell these from a home kitchen. This includes kombucha. Kombucha is unique in that it's either, it needs a beverage license through the New Hampshire Department of Health and Human Services Food Protection or it needs a liquor license through the New Hampshire Liquor Commission. That's because the alcohol content must be less than, well, actually 0.5% or lower to be licensed as a beverage processor. So this level of alcohol can be very difficult to achieve. And there are some other special processes, such as dehydration, that also require a commercial kitchen. That means dehydrating foods, such as your own spices or fruit or vegetables, cannot be done in a home kitchen and then sold. 
Refrigerated foods are foods requiring time temperature control for safety, also known as TCS foods, also must be done in a commercial kitchen. These are foods such as cheesecake, sandwiches, salads, soups, single-crust pies. Depending on your food and how you plan to sell it wholesale or directly to customers, you may need additional licenses. You can contact us or Royanne Bosity at New Hampshire Food Protection for more details. We'll put her contact information in the show notes. Okay, so that was quite a lot. You're committed to finding a commercial kitchen for your excellent new food product. You've looked at the processes you're going to use, um, and you decided that you need a commercial kitchen. So what, what do you do? You can build your own kitchen, and some people do that, but surely it is a, costs a lot of money. So you might want to actually look for one you can rent or borrow. Commercial kitchen businesses are few and far between in our state, but that doesn't mean you're out of luck. Commercial food processors, small food processors that Ann and I know, use kitchens and found in schools or churches, function halls, restaurants, caterers, and other food establishments. And you can check this out also. Uh, they may be willing to allow you to use their commercial kitchen for a reasonable cost. So we'll put contact information for the commercial kitchen rental businesses that we know in the show notes. This is the required equipment that must be present to be a licensed commercial kitchen. Commercial refrigeration a three-bay sink to wash, rinse, and sanitize equipment, separate food prep sink, at least one hand-washing sink, a separate mop sink. Floors and walls and ceilings are required to be smooth, durable, and non-absorbent and easily cleanable. To get a license for the commercial kitchen you are using, even if they already have a license and are using it, like at a restaurant, you still need to get your own license. Uh, you'll need to submit these pieces of information that Ann just listed, along with your food processing application and fee. Uh, you'll have to include a process review of your recipe and steps to making the product uh, done by a processing authority such as UMaine or Cornell. So you'll need to send that to them and they'll approve it or not. Um, you'll need a list of products and labels for each food you're going to make and sell. You're going to need to send in the water results. If you're using a private well, you'll need septic documentation, including approval for construction and approval for operation. And this in particular, you'll want to speak with Roryanne Bossidy about, because I know at least one instance where they started out making one food and needed one size septic and they decided they wanted to do a different food and it was a lot more water they were going to be using and the septic that they built was not going to be adequate. So please think about what you're going to be making and talk to Royanne uh, about what you're going to need. Um, if the facility is new, then floor plans are required to be submitted for a plan review. Hazard analysis, critical control point, that you'll see that abbreviated H-A-C-C-P, and they pronounce that HACCP. A HACCP plan outlining critical control points and critical limits for each acidified food um, will be needed to be submitted for this license. The process review will help you to define those critical control points and critical limits. A critical control point is a step in your process at which a control measure, such as temperature or an acid, can be applied to prevent or eliminate a food safety hazard or reduce it to an acceptable level. Critical limit is a maximum or minimum value to which a biological, chemical, or physical parameter must be controlled at a critical control step to prevent, eliminate, or reduce to an acceptable level the occurrence of a food safety hazard. 
Critical limits must be something that can be monitored by measurement or observation. They must be scientifically or regulatory based. Examples include temperature, time, pH, water activity, or available chlorine. There are additional uh, FDA requirements for acidified foods. Processors of acidified foods are required to attend and satisfactorily complete a better process control school for acidified foods. Those are offered across the country. Some are in person, some are online. In addition to the Better Process Control School, manufacturers of acidified foods are required to file and register their scheduled processes with the FDA. A scheduled process is the steps and controls you use to manufacture a food that will not permit the growth of foodborne illness-causing microorganisms. New Hampshire Food Protection has a detailed info sheet on these FDA requirements. We'll post a link to the sheets in the show notes. All right, we're near the end. We're going to talk about the question of the day, and it's one we get quite often. I've been making pickles like this my whole life, and no one has ever gotten sick. So why do I have to have a license and commercial kitchen to make them for sale? Remember, selling food to the public is not like making pickles for your family and friends. The risk of acidifying foods is higher than making jams or jellies, for example. Recipes that are altered or self-designed may have unknown acidity levels, which in turn could cause food spoilage and even botulism. About 30 years ago, I answered a question about potential botulism in home canned pickles. The jars were showing almost every sign of botulism toxin. Come to find out, the person had altered the recipe so that it was no longer as acid as it should have been. The result was the jars had to be detoxified before throwing them away. Keep in mind that you will be selling food to the public and want to be as safe as possible in your processing. Detoxifying means to make food so it cannot be consumed by people or animals and make them sick. To detoxify, you might mix bleach or ammonia or kitty litter with the contaminated food to make it inedible. A recommended alternative is to boil the jars and contents for 30 minutes. So now our food safety tip of the day is calibrate your thermometer. Do you have a thermometer? Is it calibrated? Lots of folks have food thermometers, but just leave them in the drawer and have no idea how to use them or how to calibrate them. But you are not going to be that person anymore. If you have a thermometer, we're going to talk about how to calibrate it. And we'll also put an instruction sheet and a two minute video in the show notes. So here's a quick description of how to calibrate. Get a medium-sized container, like a two-cup measuring cup works or anything about that size. Fill it with ice. Then fill it with water. So you get an ice water mix here. Stir it or agitate it for a minute. Then put your thermometer in, not touching the sides or bottom of the container. And be sure to take the thermometer out of the sheath if it is in one. So put the thermometer in there, not touching the sides or the bottom. And when the temperature stops moving, it should read... 32 degrees Fahrenheit. You've made a, a standard. You've made this ice water that you can count on is going to be 32 degrees Fahrenheit. If your thermometer doesn't say 32 degrees Fahrenheit, if you have an old-fashioned analog, sort of the circle thermometer, you can use the nut underneath it to adjust it so it reads 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Now you know when you test a food, it's going to be give you the correct temperature. 
for digital thermometers, often you can't adjust them. So you might have to throw them away or always, or make a note and stick it really right on it that says this reads wrong and adjust it this way. But I would recommend that you get a new one. Now, digital thermometers, digital everything, people just think, oh, it's digital. So um, it's all good. Please calibrate or at least test your digital thermometer in that ice water uh, test. Because let me give you an example that happened to me. I had a digital thermometer that I used. Well, I didn't use it that much before I got this job. Now I use it all the time. But um, I thought I should, when I got this job, I thought, you know, I'm teaching about calibration. I should calibrate my thermometers. So I did that. I got used, put my digital thermometer in that ice water bath. And lo and behold, it's supposed to read 32, right? Mine read 38. So that means every time I tempt something with that thermometer, it was telling me it was six degrees hotter than it really was. So that thermometer, it did have a little calibration button on it, but it didn't work. So that thermometer is gone and I have a new one that I love and I calibrate it. You know, I'm at home at a a commercial facility. You probably want to calibrate it every day or several times a day at home. I do it like twice a year, but um, it's always right on my new digital thermometer. So I encourage you to not trust your your digital thermometer till you test it. And of course, Every, every thermometer you should calibrate, whether it's digital or not. Uh, check it out. Make sure it's reading correctly. Thank you, Mary. Talk to you next time on Food Safety for Everyone. Food Safety for Everyone is a production of University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. Views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily those of the university, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial products in this podcast does not imply endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, U.S. Department of Agriculture, and New Hampshire counties cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.edu.